It's the 48th episode of Dave's Daredevil Podcast, and Electro is gathering the greatest foes of the man without fear with an eye for revenge on Old Hornhead. Welcome to episode 48 of Dave's Daredevil Podcast. I am J. David Weeder. You can call me Dave. This is the show all about Marvel's man without fear, Daredevil. This week we've got a big issue to cover, and by that I mean length. It's a 39-page main story with a backup. Pinups, and there's lots and lots of villains. But first, my final heartfelt defense. Warts and all of the 2003 Daredevil movie. And the final topic is the villains. You have two. We have Kingpin, who's the main big baddie, played by Michael Clark Duncan. The second is Bullseye, the assassin we know and love and hate all at once, played by Colin Farrell. Let's talk about Bullseye first. Farrell's performance is criticized as being over the top, and I share that. Not as a critique, but as a statement. It is over the top. Now, the visage of Bullseye is changed. It removes the costume, but really it lets... Colin Farrell chew the scenery better, more facial expressions removing that mask, and a more real-world appearance, only slightly. There's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with the way Bullseye was portrayed. The character of Bullseye is simple. He's a physical threat. He's a killer. He is over the top, just by very nature of his character. Now, are there scenes where Farrell could have downplayed it and been a little bit more menacing? Of course there are. But that's not necessarily how Bullseye would be in real life. Bullseye is... Well, he's psychotic. In no uncertain terms, he is crazy. He's bat crazy. And Farrell sells that. In fact, he may oversell that. Sure, there are times when he could have used some restraint and I would have been fine with that. But I also don't hate the performance. I quite enjoy it. There's nothing greatly broken with Bullseye. Simple character, presented simply. Kingpin, however, Kingpin does way too much scenery chewing in both versions of the film. Michael Clark Duncan just overplays it. And Clark Duncan was not an actor who really overplayed. Just by nature of his voice, his stature, it was hard for him to overplay it. So I kind of put most of his portrayal on the director. Because Mark Stephen Johnson seemed to be looking for that over-the-top edge. The thing is, he forgets to put in the humanity of the kingpin. Fisk's real human side. And the way they do this is not including Vanessa. So we get all the evil, all of the menace of the kingpin but none of the other side of his persona no restraint it strips the character of pathos it just makes him a video game final boss as fisk says in the movie it's just business michael clark duncan really shines in quieter moments when he's having an interaction with matt and foggy at the party for example but he just ends up showing more brawn than brains he has no real character arc he doesn't end up changed at the end of the movie and really, he's not defeated because, well, he's probably going to get out of prison pretty soon. Now, sure, they're wanting to set up for a sequel, but that sequel never came, did it? The thing that always bothered me in the theatrical cut that was amended in the director's cut was that his ultimate defeat comes out of nowhere. 
After the physical altercation with Daredevil, Daredevil says, Hey, the police are coming for you. They know who the Kingpin is. How? How did this come to be? Well, it's expanded in the director's cut. Tied into the murder mystery that Foggy's investigating, which was a touch that I really liked, giving Foggy a through line as well. As Fisk's assistant Wesley is fingered on a murder for Lisa Tazio, he turns over, turns informant, and gives everybody the scoop on Wilson Fisk. It's a very watered-down Kingpin. Because Kingpin in himself, especially post-Miller, really does have a lot going for him. He's a great villain. But even a watered-down Kingpin retains some validity. It just, in terms of villainy, in terms of the arcs that these characters could have taken, it feels com- it feels incomplete. It feels like there's a lot of untapped potential there that maybe a sequel could have solved. I don't know. And we'll never know. But I will say this in defense. The feeling of potential is there. This could have been a very good franchise. With a fairly weak first movie, good, but weak. Definitely not a critical masterpiece. I've never said that. From day one, what I'm out to prove is it's not as bad as people give it the reputation for. It pulled from the source material, it just didn't explore it completely. That's the movie's major failing. And while the director's cut does add a good storytelling element to it in a subplot that fleshes out the movie as a whole, it still never really reaches what we would see as the current Marvel standard today. But... Superhero movies were still in an experimental art form at that stage. The template for the 21st century had not been set and defined. Not in the way it is now. Which is why I feel that while the movie is good, it's very much a product of its time, and the Netflix Daredevil series, the logical successor, is going to eclipse it in a big, big way because the template exists now. Filmmakers, producers, they know what works and what doesn't for the most part. So if I have one big defense, overall... In a simple sentence, it is that Daredevil was a product of its time, both in special effects and in superhero storytelling on the big screen. But that's kind of where I'm going to tie off the discussion of the movie, and the reason is, at some point, I may revisit that in a different venue, in a more complete, fleshed-out form. So I don't want to really throw it all in the wall and see what sticks right now. Plus, I'm ready to move on and talk about other things, like this week's comic, in which we have Electro and his emissaries of evil which we are going to talk about right after this podcast promo break for the Fantasticast. The Fantasticast is your guide to the Fantastic Four from the beginning of the Marvel Age of Comics in 1961 onwards. Each week, Steve Lacey and Andy Leyland cover every issue, spin-off, guest appearance and cameo, and more. And in 2015, we begin our journey through the decade that tastes forgot, the 1970s. Join us as we take a look at... The departure of Jack Kirby and Stan Lee. The Kree Skrull War. The arrival of Marvel Team-Up. Bill Murray as the Human Torch. Creators including Roy Thomas, George Perez, Marv Wolfman, Jerry Conway, Rich Buckler and John Byrne. And of course, Marvel 2-in-1. All this and more at ffcast.libsyn.com and on iTunes and Stitcher. The Fantastic Cast. Insert catchy tagline here. Wait, what? Alright, true believers, we are back to dive into this week's issue, which is the first ever Daredevil Annual, which was cover dated September 1967, or simply 1967. Your mileage may vary. It has a cover that's serviceable. Daredevil's beset upon from five of his former enemies, Electro, the Gladiator, Stiltman, Leapfrog, and the Matador. 
And Daredevil's basically dodging a lightning bolt from Electro, trying not to laugh at the Matador, and dodging Gladiator's blades at the same time. I say it's serviceable, and that's really what it is. There's nothing extremely exciting about it. There's nothing all that dynamic. We have a big banner saying Electro and his Emissaries of Evil, which is also the title of the story. But it's very basic. It's very straightforward. That's not a bad thing, but it doesn't lead to a lot of commentary either. So, as mentioned, the title of the story is Electro and his Emissaries of Evil. Written by Stan Lee, penciled by Gene the Dean Colon, inked by John Tartaglioni, and lettered by Sam Rosen. If you're wanting to catch this, it was reprinted several times. Giant Size Daredevil number 1 has this story. Essential Daredevil Volume 2 has this story. The Marvel Masterworks Volume 41 has it, which is Daredevil Volume 3. The easiest is going to be your Marvel Digital app, Comixology, and Marvel Digital Unlimited subscription service. So to give you a breakdown of the first part of this story, Daredevil is exercising in the hidden gym of his new brownstone apartment, dwelling on his life of solitude. He goes upstairs to his living room, dons his crimson cowl, tests out his belly club, and swings out into the night as Daredevil. His patrol is quiet until he stumbles upon the familiar sight of his old villain, the Matador, and he is not alone. In a dark alley, the Matador meets up with Electro, who has been recruiting villains for a group called the Emissaries of Evil, for the sole purpose of revenge on Daredevil. The Matador likes what he hears and has nothing else to do, so he signs up, which makes it a sweet surprise when Daredevil swings down into the alley. A fight ensues, and despite Daredevil holding his own, he gets stunned by one of Electro's blasts. Instead of finishing the man without fear, the two villains leave him there to recover to take revenge a little bit further down the line. And a wobbly Daredevil heads back to his brownstone to wonder who the other three members of the Emissaries of Evil are. I mean, it's always good to know who wants revenge on you, after all. So kind of taking a closer look at this, we begin with this really sweet Matt Murdock workout montage. Even Rocky had a montage. It's a single page of Matt in his costume with his cowl off, just doing acrobatics. And it's by Gene Colan, which means I can sit here and just stare at this all day long. Now, as mentioned, Matt has now moved into his signature brownstone from his very plain, straightforward apartment. The brownstone will be a very big part of Daredevil for a very, very long time, both in this iteration and later iterations. So, this is kind of a big deal. This is very relevant. Because now Daredevil has a more recognizable, more distinctive headquarters. And, of course, he's contemplating being the superhero, being the lonely man, kind of the life of Daredevil. Nothing new here. You know, Matt's always a little bit conflicted, at least, about being Daredevil. Who can he bring into his life? Who can he share his secrets with? Probably not Karen, apparently, but what are you going to do? And we get more wonderful Gene Colan traveling action. Again, if you pitched me the idea of a Gene Colan issue of Daredevil, where he basically just swings and gallivants around the city, yep, I'm in. I'll buy it. Assuming time travel was a factor, of course. But he comes across Matador and Electro. So here's the quiz, Hotshot. You have the drop on two villains, who are completely unaware you're there. So do you A, swoop in, take them out with stealth, B, call for backup, or C, casually announce your presence and wait for the inevitable attack? Matt goes with C. He got a little bit cocky there. You know, Matador may be a joke. And sure, Electro he defeated once before, but Electro really isn't somebody to trifle with. Electricity is a hell of a thing, and, you know, how I don't care how insulated your Daredevil costume is, Daredevil could be fried. They could be serving him alongside hush puppies at Popeye's Chicken by the time Electro was done with him. Why didn't Matt use the advantage? Now, the real answer is, well, it's way too early in the story to defeat these two, and we've got a snowball to build. 
more and more villains to be added to the mix. But it still leaves a head-scratcher. There's probably better ways for Matt have, to have handled that, but the thing about this issue is it's very much a fighting game in that you're going to fight bosses. So Daredevil swings around, fights Electro and Matador. He swings around, fights some of the other emissaries. That's kind of the structure of this issue. It's basically just staging fight after fight after fight with some of Daredevil's more well-known villains and the Matador and Leapfrog thrown in for no particular reason. Is that a positive or a negative? Well, depends what you're wanting. I'm sure in the year this came out, with the annuals being kind of a, really usually a reprint type of publication, since we didn't have trades back then, things of that nature, is a good way to get some of the more relevant stories back on the shelves. But, if you're doing original material, there's kind of that conflict of, well, we don't want to do too much to really shake up the, the normal book. Because unlike today, where you can go out and grab the trade, or grab the digital copy, or reprint, if you miss this issue and something amazingly relevant occurs, you're in the dark for a bit. So that's kind of what you're up against at this time with an annual. It needs to be a semi-self-contained story, but it needs to be exciting because you've got a higher page count. You've got a total of 39 story pages versus your normal 19 to 20. And Matt's not the only one that makes a kind of a dumb mistake. Electro, well, announces he's about to attack, tells Matt exactly what he's about to do, giving Matt enough warning to dodge the electric attack. Matt's polite and thanks him, sarcastically, because it's kind of a, well, dumb move. So, I'm going to take two points from House Slytherin because of Electro's dumb move. But what cracks me up is when the Matador comes on the scene and Daredevil says, Oh, I forgot about you all entirely. Say what you want about Silver and Bronze Age comics. But don't say they're not ironic, and don't say they don't do meta-commentary because we had all forgotten about the Matador, and that's probably a better life to live when the Matador's not in the forefront of your memory. To Colin's credit... He never lets any of the fights in this book, especially this one, remain static or repetitive. Colin manages to fit a lot in the page. It's almost paradoxical because you have very small panels in the sequence. It can make it a challenge to follow the fight from time to time, but it definitely makes you feel that there's a lot of movement and there's a lot of blows being thrown. Because he's shrinking down the action into these tiny sequences, so it feels like it moves fast, because you're reading these panels faster and faster and faster. You're, you're seeing a lot on a single page, but at the same time, the size ratio kind of makes it hard to decipher. But I kind of lean on the kudos because, again, the pacing is good, there's a lot happening, and the visuals are nice. They're not the greatest storytelling visuals, but they're not quite cheesecake poster visuals, if that makes sense. You definitely feel like you're seeing an event happen. And of course, the villains leave Daredevil to take revenge later. They pull another Dr. Evil, kind of like Hyde and Cobra did last time. So for as much as I want to knock Matt for having the drop on Matador and Electro and just completely blowing the element of surprise, they had Daredevil down there. And if really, if even if you don't kill him, if you're out for revenge, if you're out for defamation, why not capture him? Why not display him? Why are you not taking advantage of what you have in front of you, which is ample opportunity to take your revenge right then, right there, without the risk of coming back later and finding yourself defeated. Revenge is dangerous, kids. Always, always remember Khan, Nooni, and Singh. If Kirk hadn't tasked him so much, who knows what he could have done in the realm of villainy. But this ends up working in Electro's favor a little bit, because he gets this bonus. Yeah, he didn't take advantage of the opportunity in front of him, but it ends up causing Daredevil to doubt. Basically, Electro accidentally plays head games with Daredevil because he overhears the fact that there's going to be more emissaries of evil. This creates a little feeling of paranoia, little unrest in Daredevil, so Daredevil's not exactly focused as he should be. 
Again, we're gathering more villains. We have Electro and Matador. So who are the emissaries of evil? And, and who calls themselves emissaries of evil? Is this a formal club? Are they having meetings? Do they have stationery? Well, that's the question we're going to answer as we jump into the second part of Daredevil Annual Number 1. Melvin Potter, a.k.a. the Gladiator, flies in a private jet to join the other emissaries of evil and suits up in his new set of gladiator armor. Meanwhile, Electro helps revive Stiltman, who he fished out of the river after issue 27, and they prepare for the destruction of Daredevil. Back at the offices of Nelson and Murdoch, Karen and Foggy wonder where Matt is, because it's not like him to be late. Matt calls into work, and then heads out on the town as Daredevil to seek out the Emissaries of Evil, basically putting himself as bait by swinging around in plain sight. Daredevil finds the Matador terrorizing the docks and confronts the villain. The two fight, with Daredevil maintaining the upper hand until Matador dunks Daredevil into the river. Daredevil swings through the city again and comes across Stiltman. The two fight, with Daredevil victorious, sending Stiltman through a brick wall. But when the police arrive just a short time later, they find only a gaping hole in the wall. Both Stiltman and Daredevil have disappeared. And once again, we're going to stop and take a look at this segment of the story. As far as the Gladiator, to kind of put the connective tissue there, in Daredevil number 23, when he was teamed up with the masked Marauder, and they were trying to take over the Magia, well, the Magia looked at Marauder as the failure that he was. I mean, the dude fell into his own trap. But the Gladiator had some potential, so they asked him to join. And his idea was, yeah, I'll join, I'll work with them, but eventually I'm going to find a way to take this over. Because that's how Gladiator rolls. So Gladiator has upgraded his armor. He's coming back to get revenge on Daredevil. And the first stop he makes in New York is to return to his old costume shop. And he finds it exactly as he left it. Again, I might be nitpicky. But there's a part of me that thinks, how does it remain that way? Because we're talking about a period of time of months. In which time Gladiator was arrested and booked, even though he broke out. So he's already on file as a wanted criminal since he broke out of jail. And sure, the Magia can do quite a few things, but can they stop the costume shop from being foreclosed upon? Or what if he's renting it? What about back rent? What about taxes? What about the electric bill? Nobody thinks about these things but Dave. And yet he comes back and it's exactly as he left it. There's probably a nice layer of dust on everything. So that's not going to be good for Melvin's allergies. And as for Stiltman, again, I kind of alluded to this in the synopsis after Daredevil number 27. Again, involving the Masked Marauder. That was the Mass Marauder finale. Daredevil saw Marauder die. Stiltman ended up in the river, where the river shorted out his suit. Think about this. The suit was shorted out in water because of electricity. Electricity and water, not friends, traditionally speaking. At least not good for those in the water. However, we see Electro, an electric-based villain. His whole shtick is he shoots electricity. He controls electricity. We see Electro in the river fishing Stiltman out. That could have ended really, really badly. That could have been a big, big backfire. So luckily, we dodged a bullet there. But, you know, I can, I can move along with that. I can move along with Melvin coming back to his costume shop and everything's the same. But why didn't Electro remove Stiltman from the armor? Because we clearly see that Stiltman's put on sort of this, this gurney where he's being revived. He's still in the armor. Which would suck, because you know if you're in the river, you're in a suit of armor, that armor's going to get waterlogged. Water's going to get inside the suit, and damp underwear is the worst. So, maybe there was an interstitial scene that wasn't put in where Stiltman's walking around, out of the armor, we're repairing it, maybe. But at the same time, the visual really, it's an odd thing to be thrown by, but it did throw me, because 
Again, damp underwear. Probably the worst thing on the planet next to damp socks. Now, let's talk about motivation. Stiltman, we kind of understand. Matador, Gladiator, they make sense. They've had real defeats at the hand of Daredevil, and primarily only Daredevil. However, Electro debuted in Spider-Man number 9, where he got defeated. Not by much, but he got defeated by Spider-Man. Then we see him appear in Daredevil issue 2, which he was defeated by Daredevil, if you remember back in episode 1. However, after that, he joined up with the Sinister Six in Spider-Man's first annual and got defeated. So, out of these defeats, you have several themes being Spider-Man as the defeater, Electro being the defeated. Daredevil somehow stands out enough that Electro has to recruit other villains to get revenge on him. I guess that one-off defeat got to Electro. Or maybe Electro is realizing that Spider-Man is a different kind of hero in that he has powers. He thinks Daredevil might be easy pickings. Now we're learning, of course, that's not the case, as is Electro, but I'm wondering if he's just trying to work his way up. Because if he can conquer Daredevil, from there he can go ahead and try another round with Spider-Man. And of course I shouldn't have to point this out, but I'm going to anyway since we're in the neighborhood. Electro becomes a member of the Sinister Six, a six-member ensemble of established villains for Spider-Man. Here, Electro becomes part of the Emissaries of Evil, yet another six-member team of villains now taking on Daredevil. The frustrating thing is that Electro, being a Spider-Man villain, recruits some of the lamer villains because Daredevil's rogues gallery is that lacking. As much as I love the character, especially during this era, the rogues gallery is pretty, pretty dismal. And I don't think they recruited the, the villains that could be real threats. But I'm going to get to that a little bit later. I'm jumping ahead a little bit. And in one point when Daredevil's swinging around, using himself as bait once again, we see him swing by an office building and several of the people inside point out the superheroes. At this point, they're nonplussed. Superheroes swinging by or flying by, that becomes mundane. And I say this obvious statement to really point out what a different world Marvel's New York is to, to our real-world New York. Yeah, you see some crazy stuff in New York. But in Marvel world, it takes something like Galactus to really get people nervous. So the mindset of the average person is completely different than you or I. It's an idea that I'm constantly fascinated by. The idea of just a completely different approach to life in more regular walks of life in the Marvel Universe versus ours. But as mentioned, Daredevil's basically putting himself out as bait. He's the worm on the hook, and it works. And we actually get a decent three-page action sequence with the Matador. That's right, I said that. Again, Colin is using the smaller panels. Looking at it, it's about five panels. And different shapes of the panels to really play with the motion of the fight. Because if there's a fight, it doesn't stay in one spot. It's not rock'em sock'em robots. They're not just throwing punches and somebody's head pops up. People will be all over the place. The physics of it is, if you get hit hard enough, you move. Or you don't just try the standard punches, you try lunging at somebody's gut. And trying to knock them out that way, get the wind out of their sails. And Colin really sells it. And I remember in an interview on the Daredevil DVD, Colin was saying that every time he approached an action sequence, he went out of his way to make it different. Every time. And he really does succeed at that. Superhero action sequences are nothing new. There's something we see all the time. And the thing is, you do see very static, very repetitive action sequences. Colin trying to avoid that is admirable. 
And as he says, he took it seriously. This was his art form. Now, on that same topic, actually, something related, New York feels expansive under Colin's pen always. For example, looking at page 20, Daredevil swinging by this building, it's a small panel. Again, it's paradoxical. We've got a tiny panel, but the way Colin lays it out and what he uses there, it's kind of like putting a mirror in the room. It feels like the room gets bigger if you put it on a wall. Daredevil swinging by a large building with reflective glass. So you see his shadow. It's reflecting the city that would be off panel. And the building itself is the bulk of the panel. Again, tiny panel, big building, small Daredevil. And it works. New York feels huge, even though we're looking at a tiny, tiny image. Now, in the scheme of things, we've seen how Stan would throw odd gadgets into Daredevil's belly club. Here we see him pop open a hollow end of the tube and take a nutrient capsule, which is what, the lummus bread of the Marvel Universe? It always bothered me because you can take vitamins, but that doesn't necessarily fill up your stomach. It doesn't necessarily give you the nutrients that you want to get through your day, especially if your day consists of fighting villains. Which Daredevil's already fought the Matador, and then he runs into Stiltman, and Stiltman is introduced in a really great full-page splash. Again, Colin is playing with the space, so Stiltman looks tall, he looks imposing. This really makes me think that this issue is like, like a good sci-fi or genre TV show, where they have a moderate budget for most episodes, but certain key episodes have larger budgets. This would be the key episode with a larger budget. Even though nothing of great everlasting relevance comes of it, the increased page count really allows Colin the freedom that he needs to tell a dynamic-looking story. And the simple concept of the story allows Colin to really play with that space even further. And just like every fight in this, I mean, we're looking at some great Colin artwork. Lee, yeah, he did his part. But the dialogue isn't memorable, the concept isn't great, Colin is the MVP here because each fight is distinctive. With the Stiltman fight, it feels speedy. Lots of motion lines, lots of leaping and flipping. It really is great, especially the fact that it ends with Daredevil winning with a pimp slap to Stiltman's face, which knocks the villain through a wall. Now, of course, as mentioned, Car 54 shows up. Both villain and hero are gone. So where did the villain go? How many emissaries of evil will Daredevil face on this day? That's what we will find out as we jump into part three. Matt returns to his brownstone to find a taped message from Foggy warning him that Stiltman is still at large. The next day, Matt takes a walk in Central Park where he senses a familiar footstep, those of the Leapfrog. Matt slips into some bushes, dons his Daredevil costume and confronts Leapfrog, but in the midst of his fight with Leapfrog, the villain leaps away. Leaping, it's what he does. Daredevil follows Leapfrog to an electric power plant, where the Emissaries of Evil launch their attack, all together now. But, ready for the fight, Daredevil solidly beats his foes, rounding them up for the police. And with his foes defeated, Daredevil returns to work, explaining that he went to visit his brother, Mike. He gives Karen a hard time for not filing a brief in his absence, and thinks to himself that he must remain alone, rather than expose anyone to the dangers that come with being the man without fear. So ends the main story of the issue. And I think it's sweet that Foggy leaves the tape telling Matt not to come to work, let us know. Matt really is lucky to have Foggy. Foggy cares about Matt's safety. However, when you think about it, you know, this is stemming from Stiltman's attack on the offices of Nelson and Murdoch from issue 27. What would Foggy and Karen really do to protect Matt? Even if Matt wasn't Daredevil. They didn't do a whole lot then, 
and there's not much they could do against Stiltman, but I guess it's the thoughts that count, and it's sweet in that nature. And I have to laugh a little because, you know, you've got villains out for your head. You've fought a few of them, there's more that you're not even aware of. What do you do with your time? Why, hang out in the park. Relax. Kick it old school. That's right, Matt just hangs out in the park, enjoys some sunshine, and waits for the villains to present themselves, and I'll be damned it works because Leapfrog shows up. Now, Leapfrog, like Gladiator, has a real beef with Daredevil because the man without fear made him look stupid. Wait, I said that wrong, I'm sorry. Leapfrog just plain looks stupid. And when they come to blows, it's not even a fight. It's just a straight ass-whooping. Daredevil just beats the snot out of Leapfrog, and then, sure, you can use the excuse that Leapfrog was supposed to be the bait to lead Daredevil back, but come on, that's still just an excuse. We know what's really happening here, Leapfrog. And of course, Daredevil marches merrily into a pretty solidly presented trap. He's at least aware he's going into a trap, which counts a little bit further. This leads to all action all the time for six pages with all the villains. Now, Daredevil's definitely dodging the villains. He's making the bad guys take out each other, and it's fun. It's good to see your hero on top. However, the trade-off on that is you never feel that Daredevil's in danger. You never feel that the villains are formidable, that they are a real threat. Which removes the tension from the story. Visually great. Great to see our hero doing a beatdown on all these characters. But again, no threat. We just feel like Daredevil's walking through them like, like hot butter. And the fight ends with something that I find really thoughtful, I'll be honest with you, because Daredevil wraps the villains in a wire. And if it's broken, the reverse current will fry them all thanks to Electro's power. I like this because A, it's Matt using his noggin, using some science. But B, you're looking at this wire and it's very simple. I mean, it's thread thin. And it's holding them in place. These villains are held in place. These powerful, threatening villains are held in place by this thin, thin wire which is much like Matt himself. Again, he's a blind man with a stick who just defeated six villains. Now, Leapfrog and Matador notwithstanding, the others really could be considered high-profile villains, or at least B-level villains. Matador and Leapfrog, they're Matador and Leapfrog. I don't know what else to say to that. They're terrible. They're terrible villains. But even though the story is over, you get some extras in an annual. For example, we get a really, really great two-page bit about Daredevil's powers. It serves as a very concise primer on these powers. His sense of smell, his lie detector, all of it. Being able to run his hand across a book and get the imprint of the ink, it's all there. Two pages, very concise. I say that because the next two pages are Matt explaining Mike Murdock. So while we're taking a fairly complex idea of Daredevil's senses and just the potential that's in there, we take a really already complex situation with Matt pretending to be his twin brother, who is actually Daredevil, but Matt really is Daredevil pretending you get it, which is easy enough to follow in the context of the stories themselves if you're following along. However, we're taking that two pages and just muddying up the waters even more. This part could have been left out. We read some really great pinups, the first one being Karen. She's looking thoughtfully at her desk with a rose in a vase as she dreams of Matt kissing her and Gotta be honest, Karen just looks gorgeous. This is a seriously a beautiful piece. She's very enchanting, and as much as I don't like the character, or didn't, I should say, she's still not on my top list. We'll put it that way. But I've grown to understand her and appreciate her more. Even with that on the table, I'm still kind of enchanted by this particular picture. The next one is Foggy, looking 
thoughtful in his own way, which is to say confused, trying to sort out the Mike, Matt, Murdoch thing, and of course Karen in the middle. And then we have a Kazar image, where Kazar is walking his cat, Zabu. I'm sorry, I just don't really give two craps about Kazar. This image makes him look like a boss, but more in that, that Rick James Elvis style, because he's walking a saber-toothed cat. And then we get a really great shot of Daredevil swinging straight at us. Of course, from the pen of Colin, it's masterful. Then it moves to the villains. We get Gladiator. Ramita's design for the Gladiator was, again, it was a mess. Colin makes it work a little bit by tightening it up. What he does is make Gladiator remain imposing without weighing him down. The armor doesn't look heavy. It looks like the Gladiator could make some moves. And then we get a pinup of Leapfrog. Why? Just why? It's a guy in a frog costume who has springs on his shoes. This is followed by a pinup of the owl. Now, the owl probably should have been included in this issue. You could have done away with Matador or Leapfrog or both and put in the owl. However, as much as I like the owl, this particular image of him hanging out in a tree is, it's creepy and it's a snooze fest. The look on his face is, what would happen if he came up to you at a party and just leaned in and said, you smell different when you're awake. Yeah, think about that. And then we have, after the owl, the masked marauder doing sciency stuff and things and just can't give two craps about him. And then this ends with a one-page diagram of the Billy Club, which is always a treat. Love the Billy Club. I think it's fantastic. So I will look at these diagrams again and again and again. This one doesn't add anything that we don't already know. The idea of the handle straightening, coming apart at the middle, the small wire that comes out of the Billy Club. We all know this. We've covered this. I'm not going to weigh down the episode more with that. And then there's a short story at the end that I'm not going to put too much time in, but basically it's Gene Colan visiting Stan Lee's house in the night so they can work on Daredevil. Stan seems to be out of ideas. Colan's losing his patience with that. It's basically what I assume would happen. Colan comes in, says, hey, we got a story to do. Stan starts grasping at straws because he's writing like eight books a month or plotting, I should say. Kind of a cute story, but not a lot of time that I want to put into it. That's about all I have. So... Overall, as a total package, Daredevil Annual Number 1, what is my final verdict? We get a lot of action in the main story, no real conflict. In fact, the theme of Matt contemplating his solitude at the beginning, coming back at the last few pages, is pointless. It doesn't follow through, it doesn't track. The fights were rough, but you never got that idea that Daredevil was in over his head or that anything internally was really moving forward as far as that idea of solitude. Be really beyond that, we get a few a few mentions of Matt's feelings for Karen that keep that subplot in play, but doesn't add anything to the story, nor does it add anything to that subplot. What we have is a simple tale of villains uniting. Most of them feel like threats, such as Electro and Gladiator. And then you have choices like Matador and Leapfrog. Now, as a whole package, the extras more than make up for the fairly thin, reheated from Spider-Man annual number one plot. And Colin's visuals really kick it up a notch and keep us interested, even though, again, this is a warmed-over plot point. The pinups, even leapfrogs, look gorgeous. I mean, despite how boring it was, even the owl looked great, as far as craft. And the final extra is that goofy Gene and Stan working on the issue. As a whole, the annual's more of a treat. It's a candy bar. It tastes good, but it's not filling. It's not a full meal. And it's not an issue, really, for the history books, but... Is it readable? Is it enjoyable? Yeah, it is. And as I've said time and time again, if you can enjoy a comic book, it's not a waste of money. Were there things that could have been done better? Sure. But we're dealing with a context of a time when, well, Marvel wanted to give the illusion of change within the book, but keep everything static so they could license things. And this really works. My only real big complaint is, A, we had to borrow a Spider-Man villain for a Spider-Man-esque plot, 
and B, Daredevil's rogues gallery just wasn't up to snuff for a tale of this kind. So if I were to rank it, really, I mean, this would be a good C. It's middle of the road, it has its charms, visually more than story-wise, but definitely worth checking out. And that, as they say, is that for episode 48. Next time, we have Animan, we have time displacement shenanigans, we have political intrigue and Matt Murdock on a dance floor. All of that and more in Daredevil number 39, that is in one week. And remember, justice may be blind, but it can see in the dark. He is the one, they call a man without fear. Never far away, whenever danger is near. There's devil fight for what is right. You have been listening to Dave's Daredevil Podcast, which can be found at daredevilpodcast.com. You can subscribe to the show via the RSS link, iTunes, and other podcatchers. Or stream it on the Stitcher app, which gives you instant access to a wide range of audio programs. Email for the show can be submitted to dave at daredevilpodcast.com or through the website's handy contact form. The show is on Facebook. Simply search for Dave's Daredevil Podcast. And I am on Twitter as well. My username is at Dave Weeder. Weeder is spelled W-E-T-E-R. Daredevil and other Marvel characters are copyright Marvel Comics. Any music or sound clips are used for entertainment purposes only, and no infringement is intended. This show earns no money and exists solely for entertainment purposes only. I am J. David Weeder. Thank you so much for listening. Oh, he must hide his sadness. Tonight, they're there.